Morning. You will notice today that uh, the flowers are greenery. Uh, no color. You'll notice that the hangings have changed to purple. And there's a reason for that. Uh, as with the seasons of nature, the church also marks the passage of time um, by seasons itself, right? Or rhythms of life. And today begins what we call the season of Lent. Lent is meant to be a time of spiritual preparation in anticipation of Easter. And the purpose of Lenten season is to set aside time for reflection, right, on Jesus, to consider again his suffering and his sacrifice, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Now, if you grew up in a liturgical church, you probably associate Lent with the giving up of something, right? Chocolate, coffee, candy, alcohol. But no real connection has ever been made between what you're giving up and your faith. And I'll suggest to you today that Lent is fundamentally meant to bring us face to face with the human condition. And so this morning, we will look to gain a biblical perspective. If you want the formal consideration, biblical anthropology, what God says about men and women. And we're going to reflect, listen to scripture, reflect upon the nature and the condition of humankind, but also of God's remedy for our condition. We're going to be in Romans 5. You know that I enjoy it when you follow along in your Bibles, so please do. As we pray, open your Bible, and let's pray. Father, we do bow in your presence. And now as we turn to your word, we pray that your word would be our truth, that you would give us the gift of your spirit, that he would illuminate the text which he wrote to our benefit and to our understanding. And we pray, Lord, also that Christ's surpassing glory might be our supreme concern. And through Christ we pray. Amen. All right, let me set the stage for you. In Romans chapter 5, we are confronted with two statements that are so extreme that when we read them and stop to reflect upon what is truly being said, we are tempted to question their reliability. So when Paul in Romans 5 describes our condition without Christ, when he tells us that we, that we are weak and ungodly, when he says that we are sinners, when he says that we are dead in our sins, when he tells us forthrightly that we are deserving of God's wrath, we inevitably wonder, can it really be this bad? But then he goes on and he speaks to us about the privilege of humanity with God. And he writes that through no doing of our own, right, nothing that we have, simply in Christ and by Christ, we have been saved. We have been justified. Justified's a big word, the easiest way to remember it. It's just as if I'd never sinned. We've been justified. We've been reconciled to God. And we find ourselves in the face of this great privilege wondering, can it really be this good? And what we need to lay hold of this morning is that unless we truly see how completely helpless and hopeless our nature is without Christ, we will never appreciate what he's done. Great job on song selection this morning. Reckless love followed by it as well with my soul. 
Paul writes this letter, and you need to understand this because we tend to put the men and women of the biblical era in a category of their own, some kind of hall of fame of faith. But Paul's writing this letter to very normal people who are living in the city of Rome. They were everyday ordinary citizens, right? Some were more religious than others. Some were kinder and more gentle than others. Some were poor. Some were wealthy. Some viewed their neighbor, were viewed by their neighbors as extremely good people. Others weren't. And the point is that before they came to Christ, they were not viewed as any needier or any better or any worse than anyone else. They were simply normal people. But Paul will explain to them that while they might be normal people, they truly were in trouble because they were without God in their lives. Now, he wrote this to citizens of a city that was filled with idols and statues to many other gods. And they may indeed and probably did believe in the Roman gods. Some may have had a reverence for the God of Israel. But Paul will tell them that without Christ, all of them, every one of them, is cut off from God. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul describes their preconditioned state with three increasingly startling and strong words. So look at verse 6. Paul says, first, they are weak. He writes, while we were still weak. Now, you're reading the ESV translation. The NIV will say powerless. And when Paul says that they're weak, he doesn't mean that they're physically weak. He means spiritually weak. He meant that in our natural condition, we are powerless and unable to help ourselves. We are unable to even understand the things of God. Now, the Bible will speak of this regularly, and this is the spiritual death of which we read in Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve, the Romans, us, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Maybe alive and well in the body. But again, using New Testament language, living fleshly lives in trespass and in sin. They had deviated from the right path. They had fallen short of the standard. They had missed the mark. And they were doubly troubled. Because Paul will say they were both rebels and failures, though they knew it not. And as a result, the life of God was not in them because real life is only found in fellowship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And apart from this living relationship with Jesus Christ, we merely exist. We do not have the life of God within us. We do not have the life God created us to live. We are, in Paul's language, weak. We are, in the NIV language, powerless. We are, as Paul will say elsewhere, dead. Dead to what? Dead to the great wonder of God? Dead to the glory and to the majesty of Jesus Christ? Dead to the indwelling Holy Spirit and his promptings and his presence and the intimacy that he brings in our relationship with God the Father? Unable to remedy our circumstance. It's going to get worse. Verse 6. What does Paul say? He says that they are ungodly. They're weak. They're ungodly. Although they didn't know it, and perhaps they thought themselves to be quite nice and good people, they were, Paul said, actually ungodly. Right? Claiming, Paul will say, to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God for images of their own imagination. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They thought themselves free, but actually they were enslaved. They were living in bondage. 
What were they living in bondage to? The three great adversaries of our soul? The world? Right? The whole of society organized without reference to God and his rule? They were in bondage, we will learn, by Satan, the unseen enemy of God who Jesus described as the prince and the ruler of this world. They were enslaved to the selfish, selfish passions of their flesh, which unless they are subdued by the Spirit of God will grow and blossom into such lovely characteristics of greed and lust and laziness and pride and prejudice and self-righteousness and every imaginable kind of tyrant that will rule our thoughts and our actions. And if that's not enough, Paul goes on, thirdly, verses 9 and 10, and says that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God and subject to God's wrath. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, Scripture has a lot of what I tend to refer to as unpalatable truths. Truths that are true, although they don't taste good. They're bitter to my natural inclinations. And I think this is one of the most unpalatable truths of Scripture, is that we are, whether we acknowledge it or not, feel it or not, we are, by nature, enemies of God. And Paul will say, rightly deserving of his judgment. But notice that when Paul writes it, he writes this in the context of what Christ has done for us. And this is a very important thing for you to see. Biblically, bad news is always in the context of good news. Paul is telling the Romans, and he tells us through his letter to the Romans, that we naturally do things that displease God. Like what? Well, by nature, we reject knowledge of God. By nature, we refuse the gospel. By nature, we are filled with desires that unless they are changed, deserve God's judgment. Right? What's the point of all this? The point of Scripture is to make clear to us our fundamental problem. And here's our fundamental problem. It is not, our, our problem is not primarily a matter of what we do. Our problem is a matter of who we are. And that's a very different kind of problem. Apart from new birth, right? Jesus' words, you must be born again. Apart from new birth, listen closely, I am my problem. You are not my primary problem. My parents were not my primary problem. Jackie is not my primary problem. My enemies are not my primary problem. I, I am my primary problem, right? Not my deeds, not my circumstances, not the people of, in my life. My nature is my deepest personal problem. And this is what our reformers, the Anglican reformers, refer to in one of the articles of the faith when they speak about what classically we call original sin, the condition we find ourselves in simply by virtue of being human and living apart from Christ. They wrote this, original sin is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered in the offspring of Adam. And listen to this great sentence. Whereby 
man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that I did not have a good nature that was then transformed into a bad nature through the things I've done or left undone. David writes in Psalm 51, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is who every person born into this world is. By nature, we are selfish. By nature, we are self-centered. By nature, we are demanding. And some of you, me included in this, are well adapted to making other people feel like they're your problem. And if this morning you hear these words and your first thought is, I know people like that. (laughs) And if you're looking around to see if they're here, right? And you do not recognize your own culpability, you have been blinded by the deceitfulness of your own heart. When Paul describes our nature before new birth as subject to wrath, he's telling us that we are fundamentally rebellious and selfish and callous toward the grandeur of God. And that God is right and righteous in his response to us. Pause here, because I want to settle an argument that I do hear from time to time. Paul's not being mean and cranky. He's not having a bad day. It's not in a bad mood. He's not picking on the Romans. He's not picking on us. Paul is not a pessimist. Paul tells us what he learned from the Lord. And here's how Jesus said it in our gospel reading this morning from John chapter 3. You saw it on the screen in the NIV. I'm going to read it to you from the message. This is the crisis we're in. God light has streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for darkness. Because they did not really want to know God and were not interested in pleasing God. One commentary commenting on these verses said, We are not neutral when the light of Christ approaches us. We resist it. We are not neutral when spiritual darkness envelops us. We embrace it. Ever since the first man and woman Every human being and all human beings have been infected with a predisposition to selfishness and to self-preservation and a desire to live life on our terms. In 21st century America, by God, we assert our rights. You may know the story of St. Augustine stealing pears. It's a story he tells us in his book, The Confessions. Seems that when he was a young man, he and his friends would slip into a neighboring orchard and they would regularly steal pears. Augustine wrote in his confessions he knew that stealing pears was wrong. He said that the pears in his own orchard were of superior quality. He went on to say he wasn't even hungry. They threw the pears to the pigs. He stole them, he wrote, for the thrill of stealing, of doing something illicit and getting away with it. This is why the gossip continues to gossip. Even though they may feel remorse later, they delight in the gossip. It's why the unfaithful partner continues to be unfaithful even though they may feel remorse. It's the thrill of the sin. 
And it's this disposition, right? It is this posture. It is this attitude of the heart that provokes God's anger. Paul says God's wrath towards us. And I want you to listen to this very closely because it's very important. God's anger, this is a non sequitur. This is a biblical reality. God's anger toward our sin is actually an expression of his great love for us. Let me say that again. God's anger toward our sin is actually an expression of his great love for us. How in the world can that be true? Well, here's how it's true. Because the God that we worship discloses himself to us as a heavenly father, a loving father. And God cannot bear the disfiguring, corrupting effect of sin upon his creation. He cannot look at sin and injustice and not get angry. Why? Because God is not a watchmaker. He didn't make the world and wind it up and just sit back and contentedly let it tick down. He is not remote. He is not distant. He is a father. He is a heavenly father. He is more than your earthly father. He is all the things you ever hoped in a father. A third century theologian said it best. He who does not get angry does not care. Again and again, we read in Scripture that God's a loving Father and that we as children have an infection, and the infection is sin. We disobey God. We fall short of God's mark. All since Adam and Eve have, there is no part of us, not our mind, not our heart, not our emotions, not our will, that is free from this infection. And death outside of Christ is at work within us. And unless that illness of death is treated, it will kill us, not just our physical bodies, but our eternal spirit. And no thoughtful legal system, no <clears throat> educational system, no amount of counseling and rehabil rehabilitative services can turn us into truly good people unless we can somehow find the antibiotic to kill the disease that is at work within us. And this is the condition of every man and every woman outside of God. It is a curse, and all are under it. John Stott said, the radical disease requires a radical remedy. The radical remedy is Jesus Christ. And if you look again in your text in Romans, this is where Paul now turns Having described our hopelessness and our helpless condition apart from God, Paul goes on to describe the amazing thing that God has done. And he writes in verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled well, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, this is not the only time the Apostle Paul writes like this. But do be very clear, this is amazing grace. This is what John Newton knew when he met Christ and was absolved of the horrors of his sin of enslaving other people. For those who have believed in Christ, God has saved you from a fatal disease. And the medicine that purifies you, the medicine that heals you, the divine antibiotic that attacks sin and subdues and eventually destroys sin sickness is the blood of Christ. 
And God has given to you the very life of Christ and made you alive with Christ in Christ. Pause here. People from time to time ask me, why do y'all do communion every week? We do communion every week because we're forgetful people. And that every week you need to hear, this is what Christ has done for you. Paul goes on in Romans 5 and tells us that we were once in solidarity with Adam, but now in Christ we are in solidarity with Christ. Paul will tell us that when we believe in Christ, his Holy Spirit, his divine life came to dwell within us, and we are now joined with Christ. You are in him. He is in you. And so Paul will then go on in verse 15, and I'm going to read a slightly different translation if you're following along. And he says, the rescuing gift, right, Jesus Christ, the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin, right, Adam, if one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man, Jesus Christ, provides? Why has God done this? Because, Paul says, of his great love. Because he is rich in mercy. Because he is kind. Because he's gracious. Because he's acting according to his nature. And the consequence? In Christ, you can have peace with God. You have access by faith into this grace in which you stand. You can rejoice in your sufferings. You can sing, it is well with my soul, irrespective of the circumstances of your life, because you know that ultimately your suffering produces hope. You have God's love poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit has been given to you. Okay, friends, we are standing, right? We are standing at the very pinnacle of the gospel message. John chapter 3, Romans chapter 5 are amongst the most powerful and precious chapters in all of Scripture. Words to be dwelt upon, thought upon, prayed upon. What do they mean? They tell us of God's action grounded in love on our behalf. We read that God not only saves us, he sanctifies us. We read of new life, of grace and hope and help and purpose and joy. All these things the Scriptures tell us are ours, simply free gifts to be received from Christ, by faith, in Christ. The way we receive these gifts is by faith in God's Son. And let me tell you this, even faith is God's gift to you. I can't produce faith. Faith also is something that God gives. And this is what Paul was after way back in Romans chapter 1 when he told those Christians in Rome that they are loved by God and called to be saints, right? Everything we are and everything we might become, we are and will become because of God's call and work in our lives. Without Christ, you are weak. Without Christ, you are powerless. Without Christ, you are dead. And you have no faith to offer. But God's done it all. We might sing that in a moment too. You contribute nothing at all to the work of your salvation except your own sinfully infected condition. 
and how badly we want to provide some basis for our salvation. Like a person on life support, your only hope for health is in what is being given to you. This is the meaning of Lent. We are standing at the very heart of our faith. Apart from Christ, we are dead, but in Christ, we are alive. So how do we apply this, right? What do we do with this? I'm going to suggest that there's really only three ways to respond. One is with indifference and lackadaisical. One response is impersonal and theoretical. And a final response is both urgent and personal. The first way says, I don't know if this is true, and I don't really care. I'm here to keep peace in my family. Second way says, how can it be? This is all stuff and nonsense, foolishness. But the final response says this, the Lord brought me here today. And by his spirit, he spoke to me in these texts today. In God's grace and mercy and love seem particularly beautiful to me today. And I need them today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is your amazing grace that brought us, that brought me here this morning. It is your grace that has awakened me and softened me and opened me. Continually create and make in me a new heart and give to me perfect remission and forgiveness. I am yours and you are mine. Amen.